Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The Exodus is filled with images of God's larger plan to redeem all his people. But redemption is just the beginning. Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series Exodus, Provision in the Wilderness, with this sermon entitled The Lord Our Redeemer covers Exodus chapter 19 verses 1 to 8 and 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 to 12. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to Exodus chapter 19. Uh, we have been moving through this book uh, first last year and then again over these past few weeks. And the text we're coming to today, it's a significant one. Uh, This is a text that serves as a sort of bridge between everything that has happened in the first 18 chapters of the book of Exodus and everything that is going to follow in the stuff that remains. Because God, the God who came to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and spoke to him out of the burning bush, God, he has brought his people exactly where he promised them that he would. God told Moses, I'm sending you to Egypt, and when you come back to this mountain where I am speaking to you, you are going to come at the head of a mighty people, a people who once were slaves but now are free. And when you come to this mountain, I am going to speak to you. In Exodus 19, Israel is standing at the foot of the mountain, and Moses, he has ascended to the top, And God, God begins to speak. And the relationship that he has established with Israel, it is a relationship that he deepens because he tells his people exactly what kind of people they are to be. And we need to hear this because the kind of people God calls Israel to be, it is exactly the same kind of people he calls the church to be today. This is what he says, starting in chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said with one voice, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you as children to a gracious Father. And we pray, Lord, would you provide for us, as your family, would you provide for us what we need? Would you take this text 
And Lord, would you unfold its depth so that we would see and behold the beauty of your son, Jesus. And we would find our hearts gripped for the first time, for the thousandth time, by the one who in love came and gave himself for us. Would you do this in his name? Amen. As most of you know, I'm the father of four beautiful little girls. I've got a six-year-old named Mary Neal, twin four-year-olds named Lucy and Alice, and then we have the newest addition to our family, a nine-month-old little girl named Maggie. Now, as a father of four children, I've begun to figure out not many things, but a few things, and one of those is this. Uh, A nine-month-old child is a child you have to protect from all sorts of things, Because at about this stage, they become these little missiles of self-destruction. They're mobile, but they don't realize that there's this whole big world that can really, really deeply hurt them. Electrical sockets, instead of being things that you put plugs in, they're things you put your fingers and your tongue into for some strange reason. Uh, Coffee tables, with their sharp corners, no longer are they things you put coffee on, but instead that you pull yourself up on it and slam your head into. Uh, the stairs, they are there to climb and then to proceed to slide down, oftentimes to screams at the very end. And so as a parent, you're constantly living in this kind of mild state of paranoia, this fear of what is my child doing now? I have to keep them safe. Well, I've learned this. There are a lot of things I need to protect my girl from. But here's one thing I did not expect this time around. I didn't expect to have to protect Maggie from her sisters. Because I can secure the room. I can block the exits, block the stairs, cover all the electrical sockets. I can cover up the corners of the coffee table. I can do all those things. What I can't do is save her from the six and the four-year-olds that are running around the house. And so often... I will turn around, and there is my nine-month-old daughter, suspended above the ground by a four-year-old child who doesn't know you're supposed to support her head and you know, make sure that you get underneath the base of her, but instead is swinging her about like she's a rag doll and going, Maggie, Maggie, which sounds like a horror movie in this context. <laughs> and usually... Usually I'm fast enough to get across the room, retrieve my nine-month-old daughter, and then make sure she's okay, and then begin to admonish the four- or the six-year-old who has grabbed her up. And the conversation almost always goes like this. It's always three questions. Sweetheart, has dad not told you not to do that? Yes, dad's told me not to do that. Okay. Do you understand why? that you could hurt your sister when you pick her up and you swing her around like a rag doll. Yes, I understand that. Okay. So you knew it was wrong, and you knew it could hurt her. So why? Why did you pick her up? And this is almost always the answer. Because I wanted to. (laughs) I knew it was wrong. I knew I could injure her, perhaps permanently. But in that moment... There was something I wanted more. Something I cared about more than her or what was right. As as a parent, I hear that in my daughters and I kind of cringe because I realize it's just a reflection of something that I do every day. They're just more honest than I am. Because what is it that happens 
What is it that we experience every day of our lives when somebody else or something else gets in the way of what we want? Why is it that when our teachers or our bosses or our spouses or our neighbors, they encroach on something that we desire, that inwardly we start to bristle and get frustrated and get angry? It's because each and every one of us, we want to be an authority to ourselves. And we are convinced, we are convinced that if there is one voice that we should listen to, it is our own. This this is what makes the gospel so profoundly uncomfortable. Because the Lord, in Exodus 19 and all through the scriptures, he steps into the life of his people and says, you're right that there's one voice. The problem is it's not yours. It's mine. My people, what sets them apart is they are to be those who, as it says in verse 5, obey my voice and keep my covenant. Or to put it in words that maybe we use more often, people who trust and obey me. Why? In Exodus 19, God says first, here's why. Because I've loved you in Christ. You know, I I don't know what your experience has been, but I, I can guess because I know what I've experienced and I know what I've heard from so many of you, but When you begin to do one of those read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year programs, uh, this is about the point when things get weird for you. Because you'll be reading along in the Bible, and you'll be hearing all of these stories of the life of God's people, and then suddenly, right here at Exodus chapter 19, suddenly all these laws start appearing. These rules and regulations that just seem to pile on top of each other, and the, the, the unconscious idea that I think begins to seep in is this. God's people in the Old Testament, though we might not say it out loud, they're saved by works, by what they do in accordance to his law. Whereas God's people in the New Testament, we are saved by grace. We look at the old and the new and we start to get this idea that the Old Testament, that's legalism. The New Testament, that's the grace of the gospel. And between the two, there is a vast, vast difference. Exodus 19 says nothing could be further from the truth. God's people in the Old Testament, they are not saved by works any more than you and I are in the New Testament. They are saved for one reason and one reason alone, the glorious grace of God. You see it in this text. Before the law is ever given... Before a single demand is made, what does God say in verse 4? You yourselves, Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you, and brought you to myself. God says, Israel, here's what I've done. You groaned in misery and I heard you. I saw you in slavery and I saved you. I brought you out like a mother eagle picking up its chick in her talons and flying her to her nest that she could be provided for. I fed you, I watered you, I comforted you, I have protected you, I have done everything necessary to bring you here to this mountain to me. 
And what has Israel done to deserve any of this? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. If anything, as those of us who've been working our way through Exodus 1 to 18, Israel's done everything they can to disqualify themselves at this point. When God has spoken his word, they haven't believed it. When he has told them he would provide, they've doubted. When God invites them to trust him to provide for them, as we saw in Exodus 17, they don't even just kind of grumble. They quarrel with God and they put him on trial and they tell him that he has betrayed his promises. They have shown themselves to be a rebellious, hard-hearted, ungrateful people, and yet what have we noticed in 19 chapters? God has not once wavered from his love for his people. Not once has he been unfaithful to his promises. Not once has he turned his back on them. Again and again, his response to human sin, it is to pull us deeper and deeper and deeper into his embrace. And the question that has to be on our minds is why? Why would God keep pulling a sinful people like Israel further and further into relationship with him? And God, in Deuteronomy 7, he gives an answer. He says to Israel, you want to know why I chose you? You want to know why I loved you? Do you want to know why I plucked you out of Egypt? Here's why. One reason. I loved you, Deuteronomy 7, verse 8, and I chose you because... I loved you. I loved you because I loved you. Not because you were greater than the other nations. Not because there was some quality in you that I saw and thought, you know, there's something I could work with there. I loved you because that's who I am. Israel is no more saved by works than we are. The difference the difference between the Old Testament and the New, it's not legalism versus grace. It is promise versus fulfillment. Because what does John say in 1 John 4.10? In this is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. That's Deuteronomy 7. But what's the difference here? That love that we saw in part in the Old Testament, that is a love we have now seen in full in the one who came into this world as the propitiation for our sins. What God promised in the Old Testament, that there would come one who would crush the serpent's head and yet would have his heel bruised, who would somehow redeem and restore every broken thing, that is the one that we see now in Jesus Christ, in the one who has borne the blow for our sin, who has died the death we should have died, but not only that, who was obedient in every place that we were disobedient, who has fulfilled for us every condition so that we could come into God's presence without any fear or any worry as those saved, not by our works, but by his grace and that alone. And that grace, that grace is not a grace that's just supposed to pour into our lives and stop. God says here in this text, I didn't just save you by grace. I saved you for something. I saved you for myself. Did you notice 
Those last few words in verse 4. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In 1 Peter 3, Peter takes up that same idea and he applies it to Jesus. He says, Christ died once for all for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. Why does God save us? It's not to set us free from sin or in the case of Israel, from physical slavery, and then to send us on our merry way, to do whatever it is that we desire and to live in whatever way we want. God saves us by grace to bring us into a life-altering, dynamic relationship with the God who created the heavens and the earth and who created us to find life only in Him. You see it in the very next verse, verse 5. Now, therefore, as those who've been born on eagles' wings, as those who by grace alone have been brought to me, obey my voice and keep my covenant. Now, we need to be extremely clear on what it is that God means there. When God refers to keeping the covenant, he, he's not talking primarily about the covenant that is about to be laid down on Mount Sinai. He's referring to a covenant that has been explicitly mentioned in Exodus chapter 2 as the reason that God has redeemed Israel. This covenant that God made back in Genesis 12 to 17 with this man named Abraham, an instance where yet again, God comes to someone who has done nothing, who deserves nothing, a pagan man with a barren wife and no children, and God loves him before he ever loves him in return. And God promises this man with no child and no hope of having a child that he is going to make him a great nation. And that through him and his offspring, somehow God is going to reverse the curse that sin has brought upon the world. That through him, all the nations are going to be blessed. And what was the condition upon which Abraham received that promise? It wasn't works. What was it? Faith. Faith that expressed itself in grateful obedience. What happens with Abraham? Genesis 15, 6. He believed the Lord, and it was counted to him is righteousness. Paul in Galatians 3 says that's the gospel preached before Jesus ever set foot on this world. Same promise, same condition. But what do you see in the life of Abraham from that moment on? A man who has his experience of God's faithfulness and goodness and love grows. So too does his faith. And the greater his faith, the greater his obedience. You see a man who in the beginning obeys the Lord and fits and starts, who at times does not trust God's promise to protect him at all, even selling out his own wife, not just once, but twice, because he doesn't trust the Lord. And yet this man, 
has been so overwhelmed by God's grace that when he finally has the son of the promise, this miracle child born by God's grace to his barren wife, Isaac, and God says, give me your son as an offering, Abraham, he goes before the Lord and he offers his son because he's so convinced of God's goodness and his faithfulness that he believes that even if God asks him to follow through with the sacrifice, God would raise the dead. The point, the point of God's saving grace is no more to send us on our merry way than the point of getting married is to continue living like you're single. It is to bring us into a dynamic, life-giving relationship with the God who created the heavens and the earth and who has given for us what he didn't in the end require Abraham to give who's given his son, who has withheld from us nothing but given us everything that we would ever require. When I was in college at the University of Georgia, my freshman year, I may have shared this with you all before, I can't remember, there was a conversation that I had with a friend of mine in Bolton Dining Hall, which is a gross place, but it was one that I went to quite frequently because it was right next door to my hall, my, my dormitory. And it was a stage in my life where uh, I was still calling myself a Christian, and, and maybe I was, but if I was a Christian, I was a Christian in rebellion, uh, because I was running with Jesus with pretty much everything that I was doing at that point in time. And I remember my friend, who, who wasn't a Christian himself, but he just saw this seeming contradiction of going like, well, you say you're a Christian, but then you're doing all the things I'm doing. And he goes, how do you reconcile those things? And I cringe when I think back on my response. Because here's basically what I said to him. Not word for word, but pretty close. Well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I'm just having fun. And Jesus, Jesus' job is to forgive me. He owes this to me because of all that I've done for him. I cringe because here's what I was really saying, though I didn't realize it at the time. Jesus, you died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring me to God. But I love your benefits. I love your forgiveness. I love the protection that you offer when I find it convenient. But the person I don't love, that's you. I love what you can give me. But you, you I could do without. Because what does Jesus say in John 14, 15? If you love me, if you love me, what will you do? You will keep my commandments. Why, why do God's people trust and obey the Lord? It's not because we have to earn something from him. It's because we have stared into the face of love itself in Jesus Christ. And we have had our hearts melted by the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Who has shown us in every way that there is nothing we need that he will not provide. Who have realized that while there is sin in us that seems every day to show itself, there is always more mercy in him. That while we are weak, he is strong. That while we are often indifferent, he is kind and tender and his heart is moved for the sake of his people. 
And as those who have seen in him our highest good, we look at all the other things that we would want, our sexual preferences, our political and individual freedoms, our personal safety, and we say all of those things, whatever they might be, they are nothing compared to you. Why do I trust and obey you? Because you have loved me in a way that no one has and no one ever could but you. God also gives one more reason here, though. He says, it isn't just because I've loved you that you should trust and obey me. It's because I have a purpose for you that you should trust and obey me. Look at verses five and six. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God looks at Israel and says, here's your purpose. I redeemed you. I brought you to myself. And it was for this end that you, though all the earth is mine, every one of the nations, every single person, every single nation, they owe their existence to me. But I chose you simply because I loved you to be my treasured possession the object of my special delight, the firstborn son in my family, one that I love and care for, I have chosen you for that end, not that you would simply sit and revel in it, but that as my treasure possession, you would be to the nations a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I am blessing you, as God said earlier to Abraham, that you would be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth would be blessed. God isn't choosing Israel to the exclusion of the nations. He chose Israel for the sake of the nations. That is, those who lived in the midst of a sinful and dying world, they would be a people consumed not with ruling the nations around them, not with being more powerful than the nations around them, but instead with serving the nations around them. As a kingdom of priests, to bring before the Lord himself the needs of the nations, to pray for them, to love them, to proclaim the goodness of God's saving grace to them, even as the priests would do in the temple for Israel to be a people who mediate the knowledge of the God who created the heavens and the earth and redeems people by grace alone for himself. As a holy nation, to be those who mirror the character of God in the way that they live as individuals and as a community, a people who, as my old professor at Covenant Seminary used to say, who live distinctly in the midst of the nations for the sake of the nations who embody the rule and the reign of God in the midst of the world and give a taste of Eden in a world that often feels like hell. That's the call of God for his people. And if you understand this, suddenly all the rules and the regulations that come, they start to make sense, don't they? What is God doing? He is guiding his people and saying, you want to know what I created you for? You want to know what life looks like? Here it is. Here is what a community 
that is consumed with the love for God and love for their neighbor. Here is what it looks like. It is a law that governs every single jot and tittle of their life. There is nothing that gets left out. God's people are to be those who love the Lord with all their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength and to love their neighbor as themselves. And all of the law speaks to those things. As a community of former slaves, God repeatedly reiterates they're never to forget it. And the same grace that God has so poured out upon them, it is the grace and the kindness and the mercy they are to show to the poor and the oppressed, the widow and the orphan and the refugee. They are to be a home for everyone that has a need, everyone that is broken. As those who have been brought to God by grace alone, they are to be people who overflow with that grace for others, who invite the nations in and not hold them at a distance. A people who in word and in deed proclaim the excellencies of God in the midst of the world. That's the call for Israel. 1 Peter 2.9 says that is exactly the purpose for which God has redeemed his church. Peter says you are a chosen race. A new people born out of the world made up of every tribe and language and people and nation. And then he says this, a royal priesthood. That language is familiar. A holy nation. There it is again. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he goes on in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, as the loved people of God who live in the midst of a world that is still consumed by sin and sorrow and death, live as those whose hope is in another king and in another kingdom who will one day come and end death and sorrow and sin once and for all. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is the non-believers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they slander you basically, when they speak against you things that aren't true, they may see your good deeds, and on the day when Christ returns, they will be forced to glorify God in his presence, because they cannot but bear witness to what God has done in our midst. What is Peter saying? There is not one square inch of any of our lives that Jesus Christ has not looked at and said, that's mine. As God's people, with our ears tuned to one voice, who trust that voice and obey that voice, we are to embody his kingdom rule in the way that we mow our lawns, in the way we speak with our coworkers, in the way we think about every single corner of our lives from the hobbies that we pursue to the jobs that we work to the relationships that we pursue. Everything in word and in deed is to bear witness to the work of Christ in our midst. You know, that, that's what has made to so many people the early church so compelling. Because they're not perfect. I mean, you read the book of Corinth, it is... There's some problems in the early church. But here is something that you cannot say of them. 
They weren't people who, when they heard the good news of Jesus, simply started talking about him differently. Their lives, their individual and communal lives were literally flipped on their heads. They were people who began to live together in such a dramatically different way that the watching world, even though they hated them, they could not but bear witness that something unique was happening around them. In a world where everyone bowed to Caesar and said, Caesar is Lord, and worshipped him as a god, the church stood out because they said, no, Jesus is Lord and we will not bow. And they died for that conviction. The church, in a world that was stratified along ethnic and uh, gender and class lines, the church... The church was this place where if you walked into one of the houses where God's people were worshiping, you would find Jews and Gentiles, slave people and free people, men and women sitting down at the same table, eating the same food, which we're about to do in a moment, drinking from the same cup. And though all the world said they were separated and nothing could bring them together in Christ, these people are now made one, equals in the family of God and heirs of the same inheritance. And their lives reflected it. While the world was taking their unwanted children and throwing them outside the gates of the city, the church was scouring the city dumps and collecting the thrown out children and bringing them into their homes and raising them as their own. When plagues would hit the city, and sickness would spread and people would begin to die, one of the things that would often happen and the ancient records attest to this, is that many of the families, because they were so afraid of dying, they would just leave their sick loved ones in the house and they would flee to the hills. They would leave their sick loved ones to either die or get healthy on their own because they were so afraid. The church, the church became famous for being the people who would stay in the city and who would listen for the cries of the sick and would go into their homes, and whether they were Christians or not, whether they were a friend of the church or an enemy, they would nourish them and care for them and try to nurse them back to health. Why? Because God showed that kind of grace to them. And it was such a radically different way of life that in the fourth century you find a Roman emperor named Julian the Apostate a guy who was raised in the church but fell in love with the Greek gods and decided he wanted to see the church die. Julian the Apostate writes this letter to a pagan priest in the city of Galatia, the same city that Paul wrote the letter of Galatians to. And he complains that while he wants the church to die, it just keeps growing. And the reason he gives is this, because they're too kind. Their lives are too holy Their generosity is too radical. Everywhere we turn, they are sacrificing for the sake of the needy. And not only are they caring for the Christian poor, they're caring for the pagan poor too, for our poor. And they're asking for nothing in return. And they are being converted because of this. And he is berating this pagan priest because he says, The church is doing all of this. And what are you doing? You're getting drunk. You're feasting at banquet tables. You're engaging in sexual debauchery, which is funny because that's actually part of the pagan worship stuff. 
goes, you need to start doing what they're doing because otherwise we're going to lose. What's ironic is he's angry at the pagan priest because he's not being Christian enough. He's butting up against the kingdom of God that is exhibiting itself in the midst of the world and he does not know what to do and though he hates it, he cannot but bear witness to it. One of the greatest tragedies in the life of the American church today is this. We have become more known, not for that, but in many circles we have become more known for our anger, for our politics, for the people that we are against, and for our desire to be protected from anyone taking the things that we are precious. We have become far more known for that than we have for the kind of radical, sacrificial love that was to characterize the people of God. And instead of living distinctly in the midst of the world, we conformed to the world. And then we scratched our heads and we wondered why they didn't listen. Exodus 19, Exodus 19 is Jesus calling his church to come home, to hear his voice to come again to the one whose mercy is always new, to the one who pursues hard-hearted and rebellious people, who so loved them he was willing to bear in his body the consequences their sin deserved, who has been raised from the dead and now pours out his spirit upon them to empower them to be what he has called them to be, to hear that voice, to trust it and to obey it as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, people chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and empowered by the Spirit to bear witness with their individual and communal lives to the work of God in our midst in such a way that the watching world, just like Julian the apostate, they could not but bear witness to it. You know, I, I am so guilty of this. I look at my life, and there are so many places where I have not listened to the voice of the Lord, where I have gone my own way. And Jesus, in this text, he's calling me home. And my prayer for us, for myself, for my family, for this church, is that God would do such a radical work of grace in our midst that hearts so consumed with the desire to rule themselves would instead be transformed in the fire of God's love to those that hunger and thirst for the rule of one and one alone, Jesus Christ himself. That what would characterize us would be a people who hear and obey, trust and obey the Lord because he's loved us. He's loved us, and he has given us a purpose. Gracious Father, we are thankful as your people that, Lord, we have a God in Christ who has loved us and pursued us, Lord, when we had nothing to offer him, who when we were dead made us alive, when we were lost he found us, who continues to pour out his love and his kindness in ways unimaginable to us, but, Lord, precious in every way. 
And we ask, Lord, now, would you meet with us as your people? Would we hear you call us by name? And would you give us hearts that respond in full? You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.